the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a dinosaur, a drake, and a dirigible. The rules of time travel considered as a melting glue stick from a kindergarten. The deep origins of Bane books revealed by someone who was there in the Bane Pleistocene. Plus part 24 of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with David Drake, who is talking about his collection of time travel stories, Dinosaurs and a Dirigible. These are stories in the Time Safari series featuring Henry Vicker. And if you like really adventure-filled time travel stories, this is one to check out. These are some of my favorite of Dave's stories. They are longer novellas, in fact. David Drake, in case you didn't know, is also one of the er authors of Bane. He hates it when I say that. I don't know if he hates it. The archetypical Bane author. He was here at the beginning with Jim Bane and uh, also one of the archetypical origin authors at Tor books as well. Dave's been around and he's written some wonderful stories. And we have the time travel stories, the time safari stories, plus his traveler's story about a dirigible which is also a time travel story, in this Omnibus edition. We'll talk to Dave about that very soon. By the way, Dave also has another book out this month, which is The Savior. This is book 10 in the general series, and it was co-authored with yours truly, Tony Daniel. The Savior is out at booksellers everywhere, as is Dinosaurs and a Dirigible. We'll have an interview coming up with uh, me and Dave on The Savior later in the month, by the way. But please go out and grab that book because it's the finale of this little duology, including The Heretic and The Savior. It's a standalone novel, but you can read them both as well. And I'm really proud of it. I think Dave is really pleased with it, too. And we continue with part 24 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. So that's coming up, but first, the news. want to make a special announcement. As part of the podcast next week, we will begin the four-part miniseries presentation of a full-cast, fully-produced audio drama adaptation of Eric Flint's wonderful novella, Islands. We made this with a cast of 14 professional voice actors, a couple of wonderful sound designers who created a film-quality soundtrack, we have all original music. I think it turned out very, very good, and we are extremely happy to bring this to you. If you know anyone who would be interested in listening to the Islands audio drama, please pass the word along, and please you give it a listen. We really think you'll be glad you did. It's got war, it's got fighting, it's got a love story in the midst of all that, it's got a masterful story by Eric Flint at its heart, and it's set in the latter days of the Roman Empire, only this is an alternate history Roman Empire with muskets, steam engines, and the telegraph. It's truly an epic story, folks. So the Island's audio drama miniseries begins next week. David Drake is the archetype <laughs> of the archetypical Bane writer. Been here from the start. Been... That tour from the start as well, along with Jim Bain, of course, defined much of the tenor of what we do here at Bain Books. Dave is the creator of numerous novels. Hi, Dave. <laughs> nice Hi, to Tony. I, I just love to listen to how wonderful I am. I, I, it's just a litany that makes me cringe every time. Oh, well, I've taken it down a notch, I think, <laughs> just for you. <laughs> But Dave is the creator of numerous novels and series, including the best-selling Hammer Slammer's military science fiction series, and more recently, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy series. He's also the co-author of a host of series ranging from the Belisarius novels with Eric Flint to the Citizen series with John Lambshead and the General series with S.M. Sterling, Eric Flint, and me, Tony Daniel. 
That would be the heretic and the savior, which are currently, the savior is currently out. Dave is also the author of two high fantasy series, including the Lord of the Isles series and more recently the Book of the Elements series with uh, latest entry Monsters of the Earth. Is that still the... Uh, that's the latest, but last week I turned in the final of the four books of that series, Aaron Darkness, but you won't see that for a while. So, he's also a prolific short story writer, and much of his early work is collected in Night and Demons. Well, not most of it, but some of it. <laughs> um, mo most of the fantasy, uh, most of the science fiction is in other places including what we'll talk about today. David is a graduate of uh, Duke Law School. He's a Vietnam vet where he served in the uh, 11th Cavalry Black Horse. Is it a battalion? A regiment. Regiment. Regiment, yeah. And he reads Latin for pleasure. Uh, <laughs> now, now in our cute and compact omni-sized trade paperback format and out at booksellers everywhere is Dinosaurs and a Dirigible, a collection of Dave's time travel tales. There are five longer stories in the collection, and I think they're all novella length. Or I, I think that's correct, yeah. The first four are part of Dave's Henry Vickers Time Safari series, and the last is a wonderful standalone kind of time travel steampunk tale set in the late 1800s that in America that involves that steampunk staple, the airship. First of all, can you give us a sense of what these stories are about? Like, who is Henry Vickers? Uh, Henry Vickers is a hunting guide who, at this point, it's um, an alternate universe, but who had been a hunting guide in Africa and who has been hired by the people who have a time machine and are using hunting expeditions to the past to fund their more serious researches. Um, and he's been hired by them to guide civilians uh, to go into the past and hunt dinosaurs. He's the archetypical big game hunter, but he's stuck in a world where he couldn't do that. Yes. Uh, yeah. And this is the way he's found it. Uh, it's not so much that he loves hunting, but he loves being out and free uh, on his own in a, a world, and he could not do that anyway except by being a hunting guide. Well, know? One of the things that, that I love about the character is being inside the viewpoint of somebody who is just suffering fools around him, and you, it, you, you identify with it so much. Uh, he has to, because that's really his job more than anything else, is to, is to suffer fools. He's not doing it gladly. <laughs> no. Uh, I read a lot of memoirs by hunting guides uh, in the course of writing. As a matter of fact, I read a lot of memoirs by hunting guides, and that's one of the reasons that I thought I would I would write the story Time Safari because uh, I did not intend it for a series, but I, I the thing that is consistent in just about every guide's memoir is that the problems aren't with the dangerous animals. And, you know, problems aren't really with the weather or the insects because these are people who really kind of like that sort of situation. That's why they're in the life. Um, the problems were the clients. Uh, the clients are very rich. Uh, very strong-willed and very ignorant. Uh, quite a lot of them can't shoot. Uh, quite a lot of them drink very heavily. And even if they were nice people sober, they're very frequently not sober. And uh, every, every guide, the, the stories are not so much about what animals were shot, but the problems in getting the idiot with the 470 double rifle into a position where he could shoot the animal and not somebody else. And um, I tried to build that into the, the fictional character. Now, I may add, 
the other big impetus for writing that first story was um, A Gun for a Dinosaur by Sprague de Camp. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful story that set the ground for that kind of time travel story uh, for, you know, that that nailed it back in 1950, I think, six. Um, and this was conscious homage to Sprague, whom I'd come to know, uh, became friends with, in fact. So he, he has that also, uh, but we came to it separately, and I dare say he read some of the same books or perhaps talked to some hunting guides and learned the same things from them that I learned from my research. Before we get into development of the story, the, the stories themselves, the time travel magic, as it were, you don't ever say exactly how it works, but you get the sense when you're reading it that you really have a, you've worked it out. Um, and it plays into some of the story, especially the last story, which is uh, Boundary. Boundary Layer. Boundary Layer, which is a wonderful story. And I love the twist. One of the great twist stories I've, I've come across. Um, <laughs> that was fun. How does the time travel basically work? Uh, you say, I worked it out. I didn't work it out. I stole it from Sprague de Camp, who, who set a template. And being Sprague, he goes into a lot of nuts and bolts about it. Uh, being me, I don't. Uh, I, I want everything in the story to be self-consistent, but I am not trying to describe how time travel works because I don't know. Uh, and I figure if the, the scientists doing the job know, that's good enough. But I followed Sprague's uh, layout. And, and basically, you've got a one-to-one -one transposition. That is something that takes a week in the past. You will come, when you return, you will return one week forward. And um, there are other ramifications of this, but that's the important one uh, for for most of the purposes of this. And they don't they don't know yet whether something you do in the past will change the future. They find out perhaps, but um, it, it's it's at an early stage of development. Yeah, that, that's it. This is uh, literally um, the early stories in this collection uh, are still the testing stages of the process. And uh, Vickers is brought into it uh, because he's been involved, but he hasn't been involved in the testing. He's been involved in the cleanup. And where they, you know, an expert was necessary. And to shoot a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yes. <laughs> so, so you hire somebody whose job it is to hunt, shoot things. Uh, it. Um, he's not a technician, and you know, I'm, I'm sort of emphasizing this. He doesn't know anything about the big picture, and he doesn't particularly care. Uh, that's for other people. Uh, he has his job, and he will do his job as well as he can uh, once he's given the parameters. But um, he's found a place where he fits in. The police scene. Yeah, yeah. He capacious. Uh, yeah, he he's happy with his part of what goes on. He probably wouldn't be happy about a lot of other aspects of it and he knows that he's not stupid but he's just focusing on his job and the rest of the world can go to hell in its own way and it will sometimes it encroaches on his well <laughs> his little spot there <laughs> he, he is a man of principle and personal morality and yes, that does make it very, very hard sometimes. Yeah. Now, I was reminded a great deal of Hemingway's The Snows of Kilimanjaro, uh, 
I don't know if that was an influence here or not. None, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I I find Hemingway an impressive writer, but quite frankly, I have not read that much of him, of that group. I've read a lot more Faulkner than either Hemingway or Fitzgerald, and I <laughs> I would defy anyone to see that in my own prose. Well. Maybe you've channeled his ghost, because I would say that you have a Hemingway-ish quality to some of <laughs> some Dave Drake prose. Um, anyway, okay, the genesis of the Time Safari series. We called you an archetypical Bane writer. You are also an archetypical Tor writer. These are among the first things Tor published, correct? Yes, they are. Can you tell us how it all came about? Well, this is kind of funny. Um I wrote Time Safari for a book magazine that Jim was publishing when he was the science fiction editor of Ace Books, where Tom Doherty was the publisher. And the, I wrote Time Safari as a self-standing novella for Destinies, is what the, the book was. And Tom left Ace and founded Tor Books. And he immediately hired his two top editors from Ace to come with him to Tor. Jim came, and of course they had no inventory whatever. So uh, along with picking up reprints from Gordy Dixon and Paul Anderson and such like luminaries, uh, they discussed me, because they both knew me, knew of me. I hadn't met either one of them at the time. And I guess, it, no, that's not true. Uh, I had, in fact, met Jim in the 1974 Worldcon, met him in a hallway. And um, <laughs> didn't get along particularly well. Uh, but... I had recently quit lawyering for the town of Chapel Hill and was driving a city bus part-time. So at the bus garage, where I was sitting in the lounge waiting for a call to go out on a route, there was a call for me, and it was Jim Bain. And he told me about Tor Books, and said that they would like, he and Tom had been talking, and they would like me to expand Time Safari to novel length so that they could bring it out from Tor Books and offered me $7,500 to do this. But I was making $4.05 an hour uh, driving a city bus, and... Uh, Better than lawyering, I will say that. Uh, but I, I agreed I would try to do that, and I said, uh, do you want me to try and stretch what's there, or should I do a couple more stories of comparable length to bind in with it? And Jim said either way was fine with him. So I, I did two more stories in the series, and the book did come out as Time Safari from Tor. Then some years later, when uh, Jurassic Park had just come out, Tom, who, you know, Jim was running Bane books by this time with, with his partner, Tom Doherty, <laughs> uh, but Tom was still publisher of Tor, and is still publisher of Tor, and he uh, he phoned, and he wanted me to do a new first story for Time Safari so that they could uh, cash in on the publicity for Jurassic Park and um, put a Tyrannosaurus in it. So, <laughs> those were your instructions. Uh, those were th those. Hey, I, I've 
I've been in this business a long time. Uh, Tom, this was not a good idea, and I should have told Tom it wasn't a good idea. And you know, hell, Tom, Tom wants me to do it. Sure, how high? Um, but I did it. I did it. Uh, the thing is, as a result, and that came out as King Tyrant Lizard. No. The story was King Tyrant Lizard. I don't remember what the uh, the collection was retitled. Um, it anyway, it was uh, golly. Um, but as a result of the way this was this happened, uh, the there are four Vickers stories, but they did not all four occur together anywhere. So I mentioned, you know, I, I don't honestly remember exactly how it came up, but I said to Tony, you know, I've got five time story, time travel stories, and um, I think they might make a book Four of them are in series. The other is nothing, whatever to do with the rest. But um, is that something you'd be interested in? Yes. I said, you know, they haven't in book form. I think they're good stories, uh, but they've never done particularly well. Should, should they, they've been pitched to the wrong people. We will do it right. So that is dinosaurs and a dirigible. And the, <laughs> I, I emphasize that there is only one dirigible, and it is not in the same story as any of the dinosaurs. However, there are some very significant balloons in the dinosaur story, and the dirigible does meet a really nasty grizzly bear. So... I I want honesty in in advertising on this. Well, I mean, the thing that holds them together, of course, is these are all time travel stories, mm -hmm. um, and that's the. And if you love time travel stories and you like uh, Dave's writing, then it's the perfect combination. Uh, but let me, let me tell you, uh, fictional animals are harmed in the making of this book. <laughs> harmed a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean. <laughs> And that was sort of one of the points, uh, which also, as I said, I read a lot of uh, guides, memoirs, and some of the clients are just butchers. And they have this sense of entitlement. That, yeah. You know, hey, I paid a lot of money for this. And it, and I'm, look, I've I've never preached in any of my stories. I've described a lot of horrible things. And if you don't like that, that's, you know, fine, avoid my stuff. But the only thing that, that peeves me is when people assume that I am advocating the things I'm describing. And, you know, that very, that very frequently isn't the case. And I, I find it odd that anyone would think it was in some cases. Uh, but they do, and that peeves me. Um, so, so there. <laughs> well, I mean, it's very clear that uh, that these jerks do not represent the authorial <laughs> viewpoint in here, or Vickers, who's our main character. Yeah, no, he, but he needs to. He's the noble hunter. He's the guy that puts down the animal that's wounded. Uh, yeah, uh, but but he's also guiding people, knowing perfectly well what they're going to do, and he wants the job because it puts him where he wants to be, and the rest he just sort of lives with it, same as he does with being bitten by flies and being rained on. Well, sounds like a good setup for conflict and storytelling. <laughs> there, there is conflict, I promise. Well, what about, Dinos what about the dirigible? It's called, the story is called Travelers, and it's with two L's. Uh, <laughs> yes. So why two L's? My very first story appeared in an Arkham House anthology. 
I sent it to Mr. Derleth, and he didn't like any of my titles, which were bad, and gave it a title of his own, which was Denkirch, which is worse than mine. Which can be found in? Oh, uh, which, which is in um, Demons. Uh, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> Well, we hang on. It, it, it says right here. Yeah, uh, night and demons. Look, I'm sorry, but th this is this demons is... and dirigibles is what. Yeah, I know. Mind, no I know. Man, I know that's uh, th this is the second podcast in a couple hours, and uh, I'm I'm just punchy. Uh, yes, night and demons. Uh, but Denkirch is in that. Uh, but the title of the anthology that my story. That first story back in 1965, um, period, well, anthology was 67, but that was uh, Travelers by Night. And he, Mr. Derleth, used a double L, and I, in, in writing Travelers, have consistently since then used a double L. And this drives copy editors nuts because it's a British spelling. And screw it. Uh, I can't do anything about house style, but David Drake's style is the Travelers has two L's. So there. Uh, <laughs> well, if we if you ever write a ransom note, we might be able to identify you. Uh, that well, or or they would simply assume that I was a a British <laughs> That's right. kidnapper. You would throw them off the scent. Yes, yes. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes would understand. I think double L's are just scarier. That's, he was probably right. Uh, hey, he's dead. Uh, we can't ask him. Yeah. So this is a different sort of story. It, it is. It's fairly light um, and humorous, and, and it's not exactly something we always see from you. <laughs> the reader is kind of uh, is in on what's going on throughout too. We're not. It's not really a. There's a twist, but we kind of know the twist throughout, and we're kind of enjoying that we know it, and some of the characters don't. Um, da, 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 what am I going to ask about this? <laughs> well, the genesis of the story is, is what I'm trying to get to. Um, I, I've, I've always been interested in 40N stuff, uh, UFOs. And in 1896, I, I've read, I, I read in mass market ace paperbacks, I read the four collections by Charles Fort of odd phenomena. By the way, we have all those out as ebooks with a new introduction by Jack Womack at bainabooks.com. Uh, and you know, they're really quite interesting. Um, it's often said that Fort just clipped stories from newspapers. Actually, he didn't. Uh, he was using scientific journals like Nature magazine, uh, finding oddities in them and excerpting them. And some of what he dealt with is famous. Uh, his the final book uh, of his wild talents is that that is the genesis of the huge psi and psionics uh, focus in the forties uh, and fifties, sixties, even particularly in uh, astounding slash analog, as it became. Um, but he also did do a lot of published, reprinted, a lot of sightings of odd uh, aerial phenomena, aerial lights. Uh, one of his books is entirely astronomical observations. Uh, if there were large quantities of material on giant squid, uh, because for some reason in the 1890s, uh, a very large number relatively of giant squid started washing up on beaches. And then, then they stopped doing that. We now know that they exist and know a great deal about them. But at the time he was doing it in 1890, 
uh, they seemed as unlikely as sea serpents, and there are sea serpent stories also, but again, from reputable sources. I don't mean they're true. I just mean that this is not hack work. But one of the things that that happened, and this is not particularly in Fort's own work, but in 1896, there was a spate of stories about dirigible airships uh, crossing America, and little local papers would print stories about the airship that had touched down, and there was a the inventor had discussed the matter with someone in a farm or some townsman found on the road and then had taken off again. And these uh, were quite thick across middle America. Um, I set a story. Is that the, the 1800s version of the UFO myth? or? Uh, well, it, not exactly. Uh, UFOs tended to be seen, I, people looked back when UFOs started appearing, but th these, these were not unidentified. For the most part, they were identified. The inventor was named, uh, the ship was described. Uh, of course, there were real inventors working on dirigible airships at the time. Uh, <laughs> Count Zeppelin being a, a very obvious major example. Uh, but what was being reported in these little local newspapers was almost entirely fictional. Uh, they were printed as true. They were hoax stories that the newspapers were writing and publishing uh, in order to kick up circulation. Uh, UFOs are a somewhat different thing, um, and I don't think there is any connection. I'm not saying UFOs are real either, but... Uh, a different sort of mental process. Yes, yes, um, with you. But I decided just to set a story in 1896 with one of these dirigible airships uh, that isn't quite what it seems, but, um, you know, is, is perfectly believable by the technology of the time. And the odd thing is, at the time I wrote it, I had not read Jules Verne's first novel, uh, Five Weeks in a Balloon. In five, uh, Verne turns out to have been a, uh, a friend of Nadar, the uh, 19th century Paris photographer, who's best known nowadays uh, from the fact that it was in his studio that the first Impressionist exhibition, you know, they rented space in Nadar's photographic studio to hold the first Impressionist exhibition. Uh, but the, the first Nadar, the father, uh, was also a great balloon enthusiast and built a huge balloon that was intended to cross Europe, uh, in fact, got into Germany before crashing. Uh, and Verne was actually supposed to go along, chickened out at the last moment, uh, which was not a bad move, actually. Um, but his five weeks in a balloon was based on his knowledge of the top thought of the day in balloon construction. And one of the big problems with a balloon is how do you replace your hydrogen? Because you get leakage. And Verne, who was always fascinated by electricity, and remember, we're, he's working in the 1850s, 1855, I think, um, had them, his people crossing Africa by balloon, uh, had them el electrolyzing water to create hydrogen and free oxygen. And uh, this is a perfectly practical way of replenishing the hydrogen supply of a balloon uh, if you have sufficient electricity. 
And in both Vern's case and mine, we did because we're fiction writers, not um, not engineers. I did the same thing with my super tanks in uh, the Hammer series. <laughs> Uh, this is all stuff that, believe me, we could have used in 1970 in Cambodia, where I was. But uh, because I can write fiction, I could put them in in fiction. I sure knew that we needed something better than tracks, which you kept throwing. Yeah, but that's that's a different book. You have a, actually you have a track throw, a, a th tread in one of the dinosaur stories. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> believe me, that is absolutely... You knew what you were talking about. Yes, I, I really did. Well, tell us uh, about, go back to the uh, the time travel, time safari stories um, for a moment. And, and you, uh, in the same way that, that you sort of had this Fortean background that um, that popped up in here, you, you have always been really fascinated by dinosaurs. Even oh, yes. Right? Oh, yes, yes. First book I bought. And I, I don't know exactly how old I was, but I was taking Junior National History magazine. The folks had gotten it for me. I was probably eight or thereabouts. I could check the date because I've still got the envelope it came from. But I got a, a Natural History Museum monograph by Colbert on dinosaurs and... I paid my own 60 cents for that, and um, that was, believe me, a lot of money. Uh, I think I was getting a, an allowance of a nickel a week, uh, besides what I, I got another nickel to put in the uh, collection plate at church. Uh, <laughs> boy, that was, a, that was a long time ago, folks. Um, but yes, I have always been just fascinated by dinosaurs. I was making clay dinosaurs in kindergarten. They had to reuse my dinosaurs because I could make a dinosaur faster than people could make more complicated things. I was making clay triceratopses. Well, you have a you have a a, a bad editor story that has, <laughs> has to do with dinosaurs. Would you briefly? Uh, yeah. Well. <laughs> oh, I do. Um, generally, I've gotten along fine with editors. I mean, really, I, I, if they leave me alone, I leave them alone. Um, but I got a new editor at Tor. Uh, Jim left to found Bain Books. And Harriet McDougall, wonderful, wonderful editor. But she didn't like science fiction. And... Um, so Tom, quite rightly, hired uh, an editor from Ace who um, did like science fiction. And um, I, I, knew the, I knew the lady involved. And I, I've, I've decided not to use her name showing that I am now, because I'm, I'm sure she's embarrassed by it. She did eventually apologize. Um, but I, I knew her when she was a secretary at Ace Books, and I, I got along fine with her. I mean, I thought she was great. So I was perfectly happy to learn that she was going to be my editor, and I turned in the Give book. Give her a blue pencil. And... Yeah. Well, she had, honest to God, she used an indelible pencil on some of it. I mean, honestly, there, there were notes in indelible pencil on my manuscript when she sent it back. Uh, like, she changed the spelling of story, S-T-O-R-Y, as a level of a house, to S-T-O-R-E-Y in a purple indelible pencil. Honest to God. I, I, I don't know what happened to her. Uh, there were lots of insulting comments like, oh, come now, and this isn't English in the uh, the margins of the manuscript that came back. Uh, but her editorial letter, which is, I think, seven pages, I didn't read all seven of the pages, but on the first or second page, um, 
I, I had a throwaway scene. The, the book is Bridgehead. I had a throwaway scene in it in which um, it's actually a far planet, but it's assumed at the time that this is a time travel story. And um, you have a mother dinosaur and her cubs gambling through a woodland. And uh, the, the editorial note was that this is a cute scene, but dinosaurs are reptiles, and reptiles do not nurture their young. Um, well, this was 1985 that I turned this in. And it had been known for a decade that dinosaurs, some dinosaurs, did nurture their young. It's also true that a number of the higher reptiles uh, do nurture their young. And most important, it was a matter of growing public awareness, as it had been for a decade in the scientific community, that dinosaurs were warm-blooded. And I had written the stories in Time Safari in that knowledge and belief. Uh, my, my original introduction to Time Safari, uh, I, I, I'm writing a polemic in favor of the new dinosaur, the, the active, warm-blooded dinosaur that I was describing. Well, everybody knows that now. That was, I mean, that was the revolution during the 80s, and it was, yes. and it was cutting-edge science, and it was really interesting. Yeah. And I guess it hadn't got to her yet. Well, that, that's it. Uh, here is an educated person, she has a college degree, uh, who was completely unaware of that. Uh, or how to spell story. Apparently. Well, I, I, I still don't understand that one. I, I mean, honest to God, I... If she wasn't on medication, I do not know what the problem. I mean, this this took me completely aback. And I, when I got to that, oh, and there's also the, the bit about there's no such thing as a an ambassador in residence position at a university. So I had to do something about that. Uh, I had met in the State Department I, I had met the person who was in charge of the ambassador in residence program, so I, that may not that may not have been common knowledge. Uh, dinosaurs should have, and in neither of these cases was this a query. Are you sure? To which I would have said, "Yes, of course I am, you idiot." Uh, oh no, I wouldn't have said you. I would have thought you idiot. But this was just flatly telling me that no. The truth is not true at Tor. Well, that's that's one of the cool things about these stories is that this is the new version of the dinosaurs. This is, um, and things in the story turn on that fact. Uh, yes, the that they are descendants of birds, for instance. And what was it that actually killed them off? And <laughs> interesting speculation. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I, I was I was having fun playing with this stuff, but but everybody knows it now. I mean, you you've. You've watched them on television. You watched the computer-generated uh, dinosaurs uh, trotting across the the screen, uh, but that isn't what it was like in 1950 when I was learning about dinosaurs, and that's that's part of the fascination, part of the reason that I wrote these stories in the 80s was. Uh, this is new. This this is this is something amazing that's happened in my lifetime, and it did, what changed was the way science understood things, not reality. Reality always was reality, but our view of it changed, and this is such a wonderful, wonderful example of that. And it's in one of the the neatest critters around, the dinosaur. And so there was a lot of fun 
and writing those stories too. Even even though a lot of them get shot. I'm sorry, they do. <laughs> well, the book is Dinosaurs and Dirigibles by David Drake, and it is now out at booksellers everywhere. Dave, thank you very much for being with us once again. My pleasure. And now here is part 24 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's what's gone before. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their power for good, but some do not. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy the type of active that controls the force of gravity, which Jake is good at. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious organization, a secret organization of actives, dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse. They are known as the Grimnar Knights. If the Grimnar are to be believed, the evil forces of magic introduced into the world have reached a peak, and the apocalyptic finale for humanity may be about to begin. Here is Bronson Pinchot with part 24 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Chapter 10 It was nearly 11 o'clock at night, an immensely late hour for those latitudes, but the whole town was still gathered in the Gatlinburg courthouse yard listening to the disputes of theologians. The Scopes trial had brought them in from all directions. There was a friar wearing a sandwich sign announcing that he was the Bible champion of the world. There was a Seventh-day Adventist arguing that Clarence Darrow was the beast with seven heads and ten horns described in Revelation 13, and that the end of the world was at hand. A charlatan magician was escorted from the premises for pulling a rabbit from a hat while nearby a fundamentalist of the Merlin Baptists pontificated on the epistles of St. Paul while shooting lightning from his eyes, and none dared interrupt that sermon. There was the eloquent Dr. T. T. Martin of Blue Mountain, Mississippi, who had come to town with a truckload of torches, the wooden, not the human kind, and hymn books to put Darwin in his place. There was a singing brother bellowing apocalyptic hymns. There was William Jennings Bryan, followed everywhere by a gaping crowd. It was better than the circus. H. L. Mencken, editorial in the Baltimore Mercurium about the Tennessee Magic Monkey Trial, 1926. New York City, New York Cornelius Gould Stuyvesant was enjoying the view from the top of the Empire State Building's super-dirigible dock. A mighty 600-foot hybrid lifter was in the final moments of docking. Cables were coming out of the sky in great unfurling masses, and his UBF employees were scurrying about securing the great beast. Two smaller dirigibles had been serviced in the last hour, and each one had been moved along with shocking efficiency. The wind over the city was potent today, but with two full-time weathermen dedicated to calming the skies, dirigibles would be able to dock safely on even the gustiest of days. There were two more cracklers on staff to deal with the static electricity and lightning issues, and even a single underpaid torch, just in case there was a fire. This might not have been the largest United Blimp and Freight station, but it was certainly the crown jewel of innovation. One of his retainers arrived, moving familiarly past his security man, and passed over the latest daily business summaries. There were two new orders from the British for small patrol craft and two complete air trains for Belgium, and they'd received the third installment payment for the Imperium's diplomatic flagship vessel. Construction was complete, and it was being taken for its test runs at the Michigan facility. 
If everything shook out to spec, it could be shipped to Japan in a matter of days. He looked forward to the last payment, since the Japs always paid in gold bars, and he couldn't care less if some of it had surely been melted down from Chinaman's teeth. A further note indicated that one of the admirals he was paying under the table at the Navy Department had confirmed that the general staff were very frightened of the new Japanese Kaga-class super dirigibles and would be ordering their own fleet upgrades in the next fiscal year. Perfect. It's a good day to be me, he said aloud, then chuckled. Every day was a good day when you were the richest man in the world. Yes, Mr. Stuyvesant, his bodyguard agreed. Cornelius couldn't remember this one's name, but he was a big brute and had come highly recommended. I wasn't talking to you, idiot, Cornelius snapped. The brute nodded politely. It was best to keep such men in their proper place. Fighting dogs should always be kept on a leash. He made a few notes on the file and passed it back to his retainer, who then retreated from the balcony with rat-like swiftness. Cornelius leaned on the balcony and savored his cigar. The dirigible was almost locked down. Who said that it was an economic depression? He was doing just fine. Hello, Mr. Stuyvesant. The voice had come from behind. Nobody was supposed to be out here except for him and his immediate entourage. Somebody was getting fired for this. He turned around, ready to bellow his fury, and stopped, surprised. Harkness. The pale horse had returned. He was standing there, calm as death, in a pitch-black suit, a craggy shadow of a man. One bony hand was resting on his bodyguard's shoulder and the giant brute collapsed to the deck, gray-faced and gasping for air. Harkness removed his hand and stepped forward. Good evening, sir. I have come for that favor. Cornelius took an involuntary step back and crashed violently into the railing. Don't come any closer. Harkness smiled with his yellowed teeth. I'm a businessman, Mr. Stuyvesant. Why would I hurt you now? I'm just here to collect on our deal. You weren't thinking of backing out now, were you? His accent seemed to accentuate every wrong word. That'd be... Rather upsetting. The bodyguard turned on his side and vomited blood in a great gushing mass. He convulsed violently, then was still. Cornelius screamed. Oh, sorry about that. I get carried away sometimes. You're going to want to have a torch clean that up. Perhaps... Throw down some peroxide as well. Now, as I was saying, Cornelius thought fast. He's still alive. I don't owe you anything until he's dead. That was the deal. Come now. We both know General Pershing is as good as dead. I've given him three years of terrible suffering, and I stand in awe of the man's will. Anyone else would have eaten a bullet by now. I know that you know I speak the truth. It hasn't accomplished what I wanted, Cornelius shouted. I wanted results. No, you wanted to fill the hole your son's death left in your soul. You wanted to fill it with revenge, and you wanted the once-favored heir that had forsaken you to come crawling back to your fold, his pride broken. That did not occur, but that's not my concern. You came to me for one thing and one thing only, death. 
painful, lingering death. Harkness stepped forward, crowding Cornelius until he could smell the tobacco on his breath. Black Jack Pershing will be dead soon, but I need my favor now. Cornelius briefly contemplated throwing himself off the ledge, but he was too scared. His fear seemed to cause his own power to flare, and he reached inside, gathered all his energy, and threw it at Harkonnes. The pale horse was hit by the telekinetic wave, and his polished dress shoes slid across the marble and into the puddle of blood. Harkonnes looked up in disbelief. That's it? That's all you have? Cornelius tried again, but his power was exhausted. Harkonnes stepped forward, glaring down at his shoes in disgust. When he looked up again, his face was flushed with anger. You think that power is something you can mistreat your whole life and never respect, and then, when in your time... Of need it will somehow rise to the occasion. He covered the distance the feeble push had moved him in two steps and grabbed Cornelius by the lapels. You have to earn power, fool. Cornelius screamed when he saw the hands curled into claws next to his body. He could almost see the flesh crawling with disease. One narrow finger came up and stroked his lips with a yellow nail. His bladder let go. Fine, fine, name it. Name your price, fiend. Please just don't hurt me. I beg you, I'll give you anything. I do not want anything more than our agreed-upon price. Harkness released him. You will... Make a change to one of your clients' specifications, and you will not inform them. He removed an envelope from his jacket and shoved it between the buttons of Cornelius's shirt. You will follow the instructions on these blueprints. Exactly, down to the most precise measurement. These changes will be made under your direct supervision. It will be done in utmost secrecy. Cornelius slid down the balcony, curled his knees up to his chest, and whimpered in a puddle of his own urine. You've been touched by the pale horse, you've heard what's happened to Pershing, despite the constant ministrations of healers, failure to follow these plans exactly, will result in you sharing his fate. I will know if you try to betray me, I am inside your skin now, Mr. Stuyvesant, goodbye. When Cornelius finally looked up with tear-filled eyes, a set of bloody footprints were all that remained of the pale horse. That was part of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a hundred hadrosaurs honking, backed up with the artillery of 15 triceratops bleating and a 50-gun, 30-06 salute by all the time-traveling safari guides out there in thanks and praise and gratitude to David Drake, author of Dinosaurs and a Dirigible and the Savior. Next week, we'll have an interview with Lois McMaster Bujold, and don't forget that our full cast, fully produced audio drama adaptation of Eric Flint's Islands begins next week, too. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>